Today on the Multiply Podcast, we're discussing the power of personal vision. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome to the Multiply Podcast. My name's Jared. And my name's David. We're glad you guys are with us. Uh, back at it. Dave, how you doing? Boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. I love it. Doing well. It's supposed to be up to 95 degrees in Syracuse this weekend, mm. um, which is good news for many people, aka the skinny people, but bad news for the rest of us. Yep, that's right. It'll be a little bit of sweating. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of air condition. Actually, a <laughs> lot of bit of air condition. Uh, a little bit of breathing hard, wishing, <laughs> wishing it was winter again. About a dozen popsicles every... <laughs> For a few hours. And that's not for your kids. That's just for you. Oh, yeah. Kids are got to fend for themselves. Well, we're excited about the podcast. Uh, we just um, we were just talking earlier. Uh, the Multiply Podcast is now international podcast. How do you really? feel? Multiple countries have been uh, tuning in and listening. Wow. That's amazing. I'm yep. just... Who would have thought? Just two guys just just <laughs> shooting the breeze and now the whole world is listening? The whole The whole world. That's not an understatement either. That's yeah. a great way to put it. It is the fastest growing discipleship leadership podcast hosted by two guys named Jared and David. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> It'd be terrible <laughs> if that was not true. Someone fact checks fact checks us and it's yeah. not true. They're like, actually there's this little podcast in <laughs> Iowa by a guy named Jared and David and it's yeah. anyway. Well, hey, if you're listening, thank you so much. Hopefully it's a benefit to you. That's why we're doing it. Um, and we're excited about today. We're going to talk some leadership stuff, right? Yeah, we're going to talk today about the power of personal vision. And this is actually something that uh, I've had the opportunity to talk about in lots of different environments. I mean, most of my life I've been speaking in the faith-based community, churches and, and religious organizations. But um, last couple of years, I've gone into some hospitals and, and different businesses and talked to them about the power of personal vision. And I'm excited to talk about that a little bit today. And um there's a book I read a few years ago called You Are What You Love by a guy named James K.A. Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at Kelvin College, and it's a great book. I highly recommend we got, it. we got to get him on the podcast, by the oh, way. Oh, my goodness. He's, he'd intimidate me with his smartness. Well, you, yeah, but you're used to that with me sitting across the, yeah. <laughs> Probably a good starting point with me not to use the word smartness. <laughs> but he, he talks about, there's one quote in there that just kind of stopped me in my tracks when I was reading. And he says that to be human, I'll say this twice because it's kind of a brainful, but to be human is to be animated by or oriented toward some vision of the good life. So to be human, so he's saying this is the nature of, of, of humankind. To be human is to be animated by and oriented toward some vision of the good life. Animated by meaning sort of set in motion, energized by, and oriented toward meaning this is the direction of your life. Some quote-unquote vision of the good life. And uh, what he's suggesting is that there's something that drives and guides every single one of us through life. Uh, And what's so powerful about this idea of the vision of the good life and personal vision is that it reveals somebody's deepest motivations, why they do what they do, but also their desired destination. Where are they trying to get? Um, And everyone has a vision of the good life. Jared, um, you know, in your, your father, you have children, you got two little ones. I have three little ones. Some would say three is more than two. Um, but even at a young age, we can see how children have this vision of the good life driving them and guiding them. 
Um, anything you've noticed in your own kids? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's funny when you understand the idea of. I think this comes down to idolatry and what we look to, and um, and I I understand for me one of my main motivators, right, or the vision of the good life has to do with approval, like really wanting approval from people and thinking, well, if if that person likes me, and and for me, I don't really care about um, if there's people I don't respect or look up to not that I don't respect them but I just don't know them like I don't really care what strangers think about me you know like some people really care about that Mm -hmm. um but people that I respect or look up to I really care and want their approval and I I already start to see this in my in my son in particular Mm -hmm. like he he really um the vision of the good life for him has to do very much so with people in his life that he looks up to whether it's uh his mom and I approving of him or now that he's in school, he just finished kindergarten, his teachers, um, you know, people that he looks up to really approving of him. And you can see it tied into this idea of like, Oh, life will be good. If I get that, if I have that approval. Yeah. yeah my two oldest girls are so different from each other. My oldest girl is an extrovert and our middle girl, uh, Caroline is an introvert. And part of Lilia being an extrovert is that her vision of the good life is being surrounded by people that she loves all of the time. So anytime we do something as a family, she always wants to know, are the cousins going to be there? And as soon as we say, or if we say no, it's like, uh, it's, it's so much less exciting than it was going to be. Or if they are going to be there, then she's just ramped up even more, but or amped up even more. But this idea of being surrounded by people all the time also means that she always wants people there that can help her with stuff. Now, Caroline, her vision of the good life as an introvert is a little more solace, a little more to herself. She's definitely more independent. And so they actually have these competing visions of the good life. So Lilia's vision of the good life is, is having access to the help that she needs whenever she needs it. And whenever she doesn't have that help, her emotions kind of fall apart. Caroline, on the other hand, gets emotionally frustrated and upset when she is not given the opportunity to help. So, you know, two girls raised by the same people in the same home already have competing visions of a good life. And um, there are all sorts of visions of the good life. You talked about the one of approval, but what are some other examples, some other different visions of the good life? Um, for me, and this is not exhaustive, but I like to break it down into really four main, four main things is one's approval. One could be, um, power. The idea that if I just have power control over others, if I'm in a place of authority, you know, that's the good life. Uh, one is security. If I, uh, if I feel safe, if I feel in control, if I know, you know, so actually this is my wife, you know, so the numbers on the bank account. Like you didn't have to be, it's not like you're even holding real cash, but just looking at that savings or the checking account and sure. the higher number, it's like, oh, okay, okay, I feel safer now. I feel more secure. And then one of the others is is uh, comfort. You know, the idea that I don't want to ever be in a, a, a situation that's uncomfortable. I don't want to have to sacrifice. I want things kind of the way I like them and easy and, and peaceful. And I think those are some of the four really big ones, approval, power, security, and comfort. Yeah. I mean, I would call those really the roots beneath um, everything. And yeah. so here's some things that maybe if we're going to think of those as roots, here's maybe some of the the plants or uh, the, the trees or other foliage terms. Um, is that even a... No. You, you you love foliage terms. Yeah. Yeah. Foliage isn't the word I was looking for. Well, Agricultural it works. terms. Uh, yeah, sure. That's good. That's yeah. good. This is like a vineyard. You just what, what kind of grapes we got for this vine? So here's some things that I I, I wrote down: uh, financial security. You mentioned that uh, independence. Some people, their vision of the good life is getting to be a part of a great team. Like mm-hmm. that's that's really what they live for. I think that's probably why you're you've asked me to be on this podcast because you want to be part of a <laughs> yes. great team. 
For some people, it's power and influence over others, being loved and respected. You mentioned control and stability, sort of the security. Is this a stable environment? Some people, it's like that sense of controlling their own destiny. Uh, some people's vision of the good life, their personal vision is actually behind them. It's the old, good old days, yeah. past successes. Um, for some people, their personal vision is a high level of productivity or being in the inner circle, having a voice, a specific uh, relationship or set of relationships, uh, the advancement of any specific cause, whether it's personal, professional, political, whatever. There's all these different personal visions that drive and guide people, and they're so powerful. And it's not like um, we... I don't even know that we always choose them. What do you think? Do we Are we in control of what our driving vision is? Or is there just something in us that everyone's going to have one and then nature, nurture, narrative, those things sort of shape our vision of the good life? I actually think it's, I, I think it's the, it's tied into something that every human being shares, which is the need for identity. You know, part of part of the effect of sin on us is in the separation of God is that we're constantly searching to find value and worth or identity. And so uh, I, I always I think everything boils down to identity and mission where we find our identity. Our mission flows out of that. And so for people, we're always searching for identity in things other than Christ. And so that influences the direction of our life. And so we think, oh, if I could just get this, then I'll finally feel uh, like I have value and worth or I finally feel like my life is secure. And, uh, and it's funny because you can have people, like you mentioned causes, you know, you can have people that feel like if, if Trump could just not be president, then all would be right in the world. And others on the other side, if Trump could just be president forever, all would be right in the world. Right. And they're driven by those ideas. You just made two totally different sets of people throw up in their mouths. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal of every podcast. Um, you know, you and I have both recently been listening to a a podcast called Finding Mastery, and uh, on it, Dr. Michael Gervais interviews people who are really craftsmen, uh, the best at what they do in their craft. And he was talking to Bob Bowman, who coached Michael Phelps, and he was saying how, like, when he works with athletes like Michael Phelps, all of them have convinced themselves along the way that there's some sort of accomplishment or achievement out there that has evaded them so far. But once they get it, they're going to be at rest. And what they learn is once they get it, it's never enough. Uh, there's always another accomplishment. There's always another achievement. And it's not even just about beating others because sometimes like uh, coaches will say, well, don't worry about beating others. Just worry about beating yourself, being the best version of yourself. Well, that in and of itself is a whole nother form of enslavement. Now you're not just enslaved to being better than people around you. Now somehow you have to be better than the best version of yourself. And this sort of exhausting idea of like there's this vision that's driving me and I'm running towards it. Um, one of the most powerful ways I've ever heard this idea articulated was by David Foster Wallace, the Pulitzer Prize winning American novelist. Uh, he gave this tremendous commencement address in 2006 at Kenyon College. And we don't usually read to you on this podcast, but this is uh, so brilliant and so well illustrates the power of personal vision. I want to read this a paragraph to you. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. We'll worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will always need more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. 
It's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. And I think he crushes this like 100%. He's saying your vision of the good life becomes the very thing you look to for meaning and purpose. And what he's basically saying is you worship it. It becomes your, your functional savior. And so when it comes to leadership, if every single one of us has personal vision, controlling us, guiding us, and, and driving us, how powerful is it for us to understand? It's huge. I mean, I, I don't know that there's a lot of things that are more important, right? Because everything you do flows out of this. All the ways that you interact with people, um, it's, it helps shape the measurement of success, right? Like, am I really being fruitful in my life? Because you can do all the all great things and have a whole lot of external fruit, but inwardly your motivation is literally worshiping something other than Christ. You know, you're looking to something other than the thing you're supposed to be pointing other people to if you're a pastor to find value and worth. So discovering that um, is essential. And I think it's not just discovering that's essential, but then actually figuring out a way to facilitate how do you reorient your vision to a proper one. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually when I give this talk in environments like hospitals and uh for-profit companies there's a tension in the room because it gets to this point in the conversation and even in the Q&A they'll often ask the question how do we get around this like how do we get off this hamster wheel of of chasing a vision that uh, is always going to evade us and never really satisfies and because I'm being respectful of my assignment in my context I kind of have to say well you know I don't I, I don't really have an answer for you I, I give them some advice and some quick thoughts on what maybe they could be doing to try to alleviate that tension. But at the end of the day, only the gospel uh, sets our hearts at ease and gives us this sense of um, there's something before me that is not uh, contingent upon even my own abilities and my performance. But the vision of the good life is Jesus, and he's mine because of what he's done for me and provided for me. And so um, not to be preaching in our little leadership session but that is has to be said because otherwise what are you going to do you're just going to exchange one vision for another would you also say this i mean this is kind of a bold statement but i think it's true is it outside of outside of knowing christ it's actually impossible to be selfless because if everybody has a vision of a preferred future then what ends up happening is every relationship you have is leveraged to accomplish your vision Right. So if my vision for the preferred future as a as a dad is to have the perfect kids, then my kids now become something that I leverage to try to accomplish that or to make money. Everyone I encounter is someone that I'm looking to to utilize or to use. Does this help me reach my vision? And we do this subconsciously all the time. Mm -hmm. But the only way that you could live a selfless life and not a selfish life is actually be freed from that and to understand like you don't have to chase a vision anymore. So now you're free to not use people, but actually serve them. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, our culture so highly values self-actualization and self-expression and self-realization. Whereas um, the scriptures and the life of Christ, we see things like self-denial and self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness. And um, we can't do that on our own. We're not wired for that. We're, we're wired really to look out for ourselves. There has to be some significant, really supernatural reorientation of our hearts uh, so that what drives us and guides us 
are not are not these sort of artificial temporary things, but something more secure and solid. So let's let's get a little practical as we wrap up as far as this idea of personal vision and the power of personal vision. It matters so much when you're leading teams because imagine trying to motivate people without understanding that every single one of them has a personal vision, a vision of the good life, and they're just not the same. Motivation is not a one-size-fits-all deal. Some things work with some people and some things don't work with other people. So, um, for example, a person who most values being part of a team, if your vision of the good life is being part of a team, you need to approach and lead that person differently than somebody whose vision of the good life is a high level of productivity. Because a high level of productivity may not actually, they may see being part of a team as getting in the way of their productivity. And people who just want to be a part of a great team maybe will sacrifice productivity just for the sense of being part of that team. And so when you're trying to motivate people to lead differently, to live differently, uh, to act differently. It's a lot about casting vision in such a way that you are connecting the vision of your organization with their personal vision and showing how those things are not conflicting, but they actually complement each other and that moving towards their personal vision will also help them move towards the vision of the organization. So here's four examples. Uh, If somebody values most being part of a team, then when you're casting vision to them about something that needs to get done, you need to use language like this. We're only going to get there, there being the vision of the organization, if we work as a team. Now, that's their personal vision, so you've connected the two. We only get there if we work as a team, and here's your role on the team. Second example, if you have somebody who most values high level of productivity, then you'll say something like, we're only going to get there with greater individual contribution. This is the only way it's going to work. Everybody's got to do their part. And here's what I need from you. And now you've tapped into their vision and connected it to the vision. Um, two more examples. People who value having a voice, which is big, I think, with uh, millennials. They, they expect to have a voice because they've grown up having a voice through social media. They're, they're publishers. Um, when you say something like this, we're only going to get there, the vision, by hearing input and ideas from each other. Uh, I need to hear your voice. What do you have to say? And then the last one is people who are looking for personal fulfillment. This idea of like when we get there, Can you imagine what it's going to feel like to look around and see what we're doing to make a difference in the world? Now, let me add a warning and then uh, I want your thoughts on this. This is manipulation and not motivation if you don't, as a leader, honestly care about the people that you're leading. Like if it's just about getting stuff done, well, if that's your vision of the good life, it's just getting stuff done, then you're going to manipulate people, not motivate them. And the other, the other Um, way this becomes manipulation is if you don't actually see a connection between their personal vision and the vision of the organization. If you get to that point, they're probably not the right person on the team. So this is one example. What have you learned in motivating people and how important it is to understand them? Yeah. And I think, um, so one of the things I've learned is to create a common language. Hmm. And I actually think this helps to also remove the idea of this being some sort of um, manipulation tool. And so for the teams that I've led, um, I've, I've begun to create a language and a culture that understands, hey, we all operate this way. Like, do we all understand? And, and I would use the term because I was in a, a church context of idolatry, right? We all understand what our idols are, what the things we look to. And what, what begins to happen is as that language works across the whole team, everybody's aware of it and everybody understands what each other's motivation is. Mm-hmm. And so 
when we're having conversation, like it would get to the point where we're just joking about it. It's like, oh man, you're always, you you're, we know you're looking for approval or, or whatever, or you, you want to, you always want to have your voice or whatever. And we're kind of making fun, but at the same time, we all understand each other better. We all speak a similar language. And so when we're communicating to each other, it just raises the, the awareness and it's not the high level leader going, Oh, I figured it out. Now I'm going to tweak all these little people to accomplish my goal. But it's creating an understanding of, Hey, this is how we all are. Now let's utilize it to accomplish the overall mission. Yeah, that's good. That's good, Jared. Um, let me give one more practical example. and We'll start to wrap up. Uh, understanding the power of personal vision when it comes to confronting somebody. If, if you're leading a team and if you're a good leader, you're going to have to confront people uh, at times. And one of the ways that we, if we understand someone's personal vision, what we can do is we can show them how the issue at hand is an obstacle, uh, not just to the vision of the organization, but it's actually an obstacle to their personal vision and let them see like what's happening, the way you're behaving, the way that you're acting, it's actually preventing you from being who you most want to be, helping them understand that. But the other idea is uh, if you know what someone's personal vision is, what their vision of the good life is, then there's times when you're confronting them where you need to let them know up front what's at stake in this difficult conversation is not your vision of the good life. So in the book, Crucial Conversations, written by Kerry Patterson and Joseph Granny and a couple others, they often say that if you're going to confront somebody, you have to start by saying what you aren't saying. So in other words, say somebody most values being part of a team and you need to confront their behavior in a meeting. What you start with, uh, as long as it's true, of course, what you start with is saying, hey, I want you to know up front, you're an important part of this team. That's not at stake. We see you. Uh, as a part of this team moving forward. Now, let me address this. And the argument in Crucial Conversations, which I agree with, is this. Until you say that, they're waiting to hear it. Mm. They're waiting to hear the other shoe drop. And while they're waiting to hear the really bad news, they're not going to hear what you're actually trying to say to them. So it's not a helpful, um, fruitful, beneficial conversation because they're so busy waiting for you to say what they're afraid you're going to say. So if you can say up front, what you're most afraid of, I'm not actually going to say, this is not at stake, but we still need to have a conversation because what you're doing is preventing us from moving forward. That's really important, but you can't do that until you understand someone's vision of the good life. Do you think sometimes some of the problems is leaders actually leverage what they know the people they're leading's greatest fears are to motivate a certain behavior? Well, that sounds like parenting. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, I think it's. I think there's a there's a fine line here, right? So if if the leader has a very unhealthy, unchecked, controlling vision of the good life, um, then they're gonna leverage everybody else's to move them closer to theirs, right? And so, again, we get back to the gospel. How do we get free from the sort of enslavement to our vision of the good life? Well, there has to be something more secure than our performance and our ability to achieve. So we're kind of circling back there, and I think that's because at the end of the day, we know that's what really matters most. Yeah, I just think it's wise to think about when we're understanding people's fears and dismissing their fears to be careful not to leverage their fears. Mm -hmm. So if you know someone's greatest fear is to not be part of the team, not to say things like, well, I mean, if you keep doing this kind of stuff, like we're not sure if you're going to be able to be allowed in these conversations or be, you know what I mean? And so, um, I think that's important and it's easy to do without even realizing it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, as we finish up, when I give this talk, I can usually feel the objections in the room. And the primary objection is this, oh, this sounds like an awful lot of emotional energy and time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like learning people's vision of it's the too good much life. work. Here's here's 
let me let me explain why I think it's still worth doing, and then let me explain how to do it. Uh, I think it's still worth doing because, in my experience as a leader, you're going to exert that emotional energy and that time one way or the other. It's just when are you going to exert it? You're either going to do it on the front end or you're going to do it on the back end, proactively or reactively. It's really your choice. If you don't address it on the front end, then you're going to be dealing with it later. So get in front of it and put in the time, put in the energy to understand your team members and their vision of the good life. Now, if you don't want to exert time and energy, then you're going to hate this final thought, which is basically this. Um, when it comes to learning people's vision of the good life, their personal vision, most of the time, most of the time, you can't just come out and ask because they won't say. They're protecting it because it means so much to them. So what do you do? You have to get them telling stories. And then as they're telling stories about what they love and and, and uh things that are going well and things that motivate them and energize them. Listen carefully for what they value. So really quick, here's three questions to ask that I think can help somebody learn the vision of the good life of their team members. Well, number one, when's the last time you left work feeling great about what we're doing here? Ask them to talk about the whole day and listen for what happened and you'll understand their vision. Number two, what is happening around you in the moments when you find yourself most frustrated and angry and wanting to quit? And listen to that story because it's going to be the other side. It's sort of going to be the flip side of their vision of the good life. It's going to be their greatest fear. And then the last question I like to ask people is this. If you could wave a magic wand and make everyone on this team or in this department or in this company, business, organization, if you can make everyone value one thing or value one thing more than they currently do, what would that thing be? And uh, let them just talk and listen. And in doing so, you're going to begin to tap in a little bit to understanding what their vision of the good life is. And, and it's powerful. Personal vision is powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let's tap into your personal vision a little bit when it comes to the food that you put in your belly. Mm. And uh, we'll do a little portion called David's Eats and find out what's the best thing that you have personally envisioned and brought into reality that you've put into your stomach. That made no sense, but you get what I'm saying. What's the best thing you ate all week? Man... Um, I think that I want to give a little shout out to my wife because my wife is a great baker. She's not listening, so that's yeah, fine. That's true. She she doesn't listen this long for sure. <laughs> She's tapped out a while ago. She's like, I hear him talk about this all the time. Um, but Aaron, you are a great baker and a great cook. And uh, my my middle girl Caroline recently is. We've learned that she's got some issues with dairy, and so. Aaron's just thrown herself into making all these baked goods that don't have dairy in them. And you can't even tell. You can't even tell. It's amazing. She made cinnamon rolls. But the other morning, uh, she poached an egg for my breakfast. Like, that's next level, mm. you know? And uh, you got to, like, poaching Poaching an egg is not an easy thing. You got to salt the water. You got to put a little vinegar in the water. You got to keep stirring that thing for, like, three minutes. But I love a runny yolk, like a runny yolk on a burger, a runny yolk over pasta, uh, or just eggs for breakfast. I love it. And so she poached an egg, put it over some bread for me, and actually she cooked up a little hash brown mix so I could uh, let the yolk break over oh the potatoes. And uh, it's a good You're life. Really living like it's a, a good king life. over there. So um, that's the best thing I've eaten this week. Wow. Sounds tasty. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the Multiply Podcast. We'll see you next time.